Good morning, Grace Orange. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4.32 says that the first church had everything in common. Now when you hear in common, two things are probably going to go through your mind. Number one, you're going to say, we don't live like that. The way I'm living is nowhere near that ideal. The second thing you're going to think is, that sounds really weird. That seems odd and certainly uncommon because it is. And we get wacky pictures in our heads of communism and communes and other kind of imbalanced communal living when we hear these words, they had everything in common. But questions come into our minds as well, like, what does it mean? What does that mean to have everything in common? And is it only for the first church or are we supposed to do something about that? And what does it mean and what would it take for there to be no needy among us? I'm going to read that in a moment in Acts 4, 32 to 37, that there was no needy amongst the first church. What would it take for us to have that be true of this church? Which, by the way, is much smaller than the first church. A lot of questions come to our minds about our common life together in Christ, and I think the biggest question should be this. What would please Jesus the most and what would further the gospel the most as the outflow of our common life together here's what we do know everything in common means that jesus wants us not just you not just me but he wants us to experience caring and sharing community in his church a lot of christians haven't experienced that he wants us to experience caring and sharing community in his church that goes beyond our many differences. We are very different people with a lot of different ideas. He wants us to experience this caring and sharing community in his church in spite of our differences so that would reflect our common life in Christ. That's what we know. So stand with me if you will. I'm gonna read Acts 4, 32 to 37. I had sort of a comedy of errors first hour I had spilled water all over myself before I came up. It was on the, the Bible, the iPad, the, the, the pants, the shirt, the tie, the whole deal. And then halfway through, I got a frog in my throat, and I had to drink all this water. It was great. I was coughing in everyone's face. And it was really loud because I didn't turn the microphone off. And then what else happened? There was something else that happened first hour. Oh, I get up here, and my batteries are completely dead in the microphone because I guess I left it on all week. And uh, I don't know why these batteries don't last, you know, 150 hours, but whatever. Uh, So here we go. We're going to read Acts 4, 32 to 37. This is the word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. 
thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word. Lord, we, we ask that you would have your way with us today, that we, we would be changed in our hearts, in our homes, in our, in our common life here at Grace Church, and, and that it would flow out into the community with, with the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a really great picture here of Christ-centered community. May it be true of us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, please be seated. It is true right here in, in Acts 4, 32 to 37, we have this beautiful picture of Christ-centered community that was focused, that was intent on proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and sacrificially serving Jesus. That's what they did. Now, we state that as what we want to do as a church, and, and that is our, our heart's desire. That's what we're, we're moving into. That's what we want to be doing. This is what they did. And this passage shows us an explanation of that. Verses 32 through 35, there's an explanation of that common life. And then we have an illustration, the first of two illustrations. Next week, we'll see the second one, which is a negative one on Ananias and Sapphira. But we'll see an illustration today of Barnabas, who, who lived out what, what was explained in terms of this community of faith. What we see here is what builds community and, and then, conversely, what breaks community because community for us often seems very fragile because it's based a lot of times in our minds on our opinions, our thoughts, the way we think things are going with other people. And what we're going to see today is it has everything to do with Jesus and what he has done, and it has a lot to do with the choices we make, but the fragility, really, of the community that we think of that easily gets fractured goes so far deeper and is so far stronger than we would ever imagine. The idea is that Christ forms eternal community. Jesus does it. He takes a ragtag bunch of dirty, rotten sinners who are spiritually dead, who cannot take one step towards God and change their state of life in, one, in any way. And he makes them alive. He takes them out of death and into life and regenerates them and transforms their lives and makes them new what Jesus does. And, and so the reality is that if you're a believer today, you are now saying, I'm going to live my life for God's purposes from here on out. That's, that's the heart desire of a believer. And that eternal realities are being played out on earth as you live in real time, because we are living now in light of eternity. And I know it's tough because we forget that. We forget that. That's why preaching is a ministry of reminding. I'm reminding myself, I'm reminding you that we are living in light of eternity and what is reflected here isn't just for a temporary time that only affects a temporary time. It actually affects eternity because people are coming to faith in Christ all the time. Do you know that the first church that was in Jerusalem there, the very first Christian church, was a megachurch? A lot of us are like, oh, we don't like megachurches. Well, do you like the first one? Because the first one had like 10 to 15,000 people, and it kept growing. It's very interesting how God did that. So what we're going to see here is, is how Christ transforms, continually transforms a community through, through God-honoring choices they make. The Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in this 
young church and it's transforming the lives of these brand new believers and the Holy Spirit's shaping this community. So everything in common means that Jesus wants us to experience caring and sharing community in his church. And I said before, a lot of Christians haven't experienced that. In fact, the best experience that you can imagine is probably short of the biblical ideal. It's got to go beyond the differences and reflect our common life in Christ, the reality of our common life in Christ. So we're going to dive in here, and we're going to see some key characteristics of this church, three in particular. We're going to see unity. They were of one heart and soul. We're going to see generosity. They were sharing what they had without you know, putting their name on everything. You know, if, I, if I let you borrow my hammer, my name will probably be on it. You know? And if you want to keep it, you're going to have to scratch my name off. My water bottle has got my name on it, you know, and you can say, well, that's good stewardship, you know. But I think there's a point where we, we make everything about our stuff, right? And by the way, we're going to see unity, generosity, and then we're going to see a testimony, a powerful witness for Christ in the gospel. And, and I want you to remember something as, as we go into this. Acts is historical narrative. There aren't commands to us in the book of Acts. So what we're seeing here is what they did. It's, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive, describing what God did amongst the, the early church. So it doesn't tell us exactly how to live. So you can't say, well, this is what I'm going to do from now on. What it does is it describes what the first church did. And in the description, we can see universal truths that we can apply into our current lives as God works in and through us and works it out in and through us so keep that in mind okay we're going to see unity generosity and testimony the first we're going to see is that there was unity there was unity in the body now before we even get to money and possessions and that issue which everyone's thinking about everyone wants to jump to that because no one wants everyone uh, people to take their stuff right so everyone's worried about that but you'll notice that we did not collect you know, 1040s and title deeds to cars and houses when you walked in today. That'll be later. No, No, seriously, we're not collecting 1040s and title deeds today, right? But money and possessions are very prominent in this passage. But before we get to that, God hits us right in between the eyes with the unity issue. Like, I I, want to talk about money. Please talk about money. Do we really have to talk about unity? Yes, we're going to talk about unity. That's what, that's what we see here first. One of the toughest things for a church full of sinful, redeemed people to pull off is unity. Look at verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed, that means all of them, right? All of them. The full number, everyone, not just 300... 3,120, not just 5,000, upwards to 10 to 15,000 and growing of those who believed. They believed in the one Savior, the only Savior. We saw this early on in this chapter. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. They believed in Jesus Christ. The number of those who believed, they were trusting in the only name. They were trusting in the finished work of Christ. And they were of one heart and soul. That means they were one together. They were, they were unified. But they didn't all think the exact same thoughts. 
They didn't all have the same ideas, much like us. You don't come in here and say, well, I'm going to check my brain at the door and I have to think exactly like everyone else. We're, we're different people, but, but one. We're one, but we're not the same, but we're one. Because Christ makes us one. He prayed for this. John 17, Jesus prayed that, that we would be one, even as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. There's our ultimate model of, of unity, by the way. The Trinity. But it's unity, not uniformity. So in the, in the midst of great diversity, there is unity. It's like the old saying, in, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love, charity. It's how we should be living. Unity goes beyond, far beyond just showing up and attending services at a church building with a bunch of people that you might know or not know, or going to a small group with a bunch of people that you might know or not know well, and then getting along with whoever you run into. Like, hey, I had unity today because I didn't stub my toe on any relationship today. I, I smiled at everybody, I waved, I said hello. I thought a few bad things about people in my head, but I didn't say them. I had unity today. I think we, we, we fall so far short of the biblical ideal because we just think I had unity because nobody was mad at me. Here's what unity is. It is a total life commitment to one another's well-being. And you're not going to be committed to every single person in the church, but you're going to know people that you're close with that you are committed to their well-being. Do you notice, I didn't say that everyone's committed to yours. You are committed to theirs. Now, if everyone's committed to someone else's well-being, then yes, you'll be the recipient of someone being committed to your well-being. But it's not about what I'm going to get. You know one of the number one reasons why people jump from church to church? Personal relationships. Sure, sometimes it's the music, sometimes it's the preaching, but a lot of times it's nobody was nice to me or everybody treated me this way or that way or no one would talk to me. You know what I say to people when they come to Grace is, we're really glad you're here. Now, time out. If you have anything against anyone else in the body of Christ, especially from the church you came from, please go back and make it, make it right with your brothers and sisters in Christ because otherwise you're going to muddy the waters here. People say, well, I want to be at the perfect church. Well, if you go join the perfect church, it is no longer perfect. You messed it up. What, what it's about is growing into the reality of the unity that Jesus has already given us. When I was a kid, my mom would buy me pants way bigger than I needed. I mean, they were like up to my chest, right? And she would always say this. You'll grow into them. You'll grow into them. Now, let me, let me translate. My mom and dad grew up in the 30s, the tail end of the Depression. They were very frugal, very wise with their money, and they weren't going to buy me pants every other week. You'll grow into them. And I'd be like swimming around in these jeans, rolling them up and cinching them tight with a rope probably. I can't remember. It's been a long time. It's like Jethro or something, right? So... But here's the deal. She would say, you'll grow into them. And sooner or later I did. But here's what happens when you become a believer. God places you into his family. By the way, a body 
the body of Christ. And here's how he does it. By grace alone. By, solely by his grace and his mercy. And he does it through faith alone. You're believing in Jesus, and, and it, you're only believing in Jesus. You're not saying, I'm gonna believe in Jesus and my good works. Jesus and, and my stellar personality. Jesus and my load of gifts that I come to bless everyone with. It's, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's for the glory of God alone. You read it in the Bible. That's our reality. But you don't come into the body of Christ fully grown. You grow into it. You grow into your family in Christ. It's the same way for this brand new church. This, the first Christian church ever located in Jerusalem, which was a mega church really, and, and they weren't they, they weren't fully grown. What did Paul say in Ephesians 4? That the whole body, doing all of its part, uh, causes the growth of the body for the building of, of itself in love. This is a process. If, if growth in Christ is a process, so is growth in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But we like to throw that away right away. We're like, oh, you know, it didn't work. I'm going elsewhere because, you know what, the people here are lame. I'm speaking hypothetically here, okay? But they were unified. They were of one heart and soul. Why would they have one heart and soul? It was because of the shed blood of Christ. It was because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's what bound them together. That's what binds us together, by the way. That's, that's our binder. Is the, the finished work of Christ, the, the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And it binds us together in unity. We have faith in Christ, a common faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is in all and through all. So God regenerates us. He makes us alive. He takes us out of death into life. And we have many brothers and sisters in Christ. And just like your family of origin, you didn't get to pick who your brothers and sisters are. I think a lot of American Christians want to pick who their brothers and sisters in Christ are. I'm only going to stay hanging around these kind of people. I don't like those kind of people. But your faith family... These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a voluntary association here, right? We're not, again, we're not collecting ten, uh, 1040s and, and title deeds, and, and we're not making you sign on the dotted line saying you'll never leave. This is a voluntary association. But, but Christ put you in his body, and so you can't go alone and say, I'm just going to be a solo Christian for the rest of my life. You've got to be in a local assembly. And here's what the local assemblies all look like. The first one to the one that will be existing right before Jesus comes back, very different people in the same family. Hey, when I was a kid, I'm like, why do I have to have an older sister and a younger sister? Can I trade the two of them in for like one brother? They're like, can we just trade him for no draft picks? Can we just send him? Can we waiver him? You don't get to choose your brothers and sisters, but you need to accept them with their flaws, with their warts, with their strengths and weaknesses, and your differences. It's about working through your differences. It's what it means to be unified in Christ. This is not like, poof, unity. Yeah, we all think. No, we don't all think the same. We're very, very different, and we're striving. We're striving for unity. And I have found that what helps me the most in this regard is to remind myself where I came from, to remind myself 
where Jesus took me from. A lot of people say, well, I was really, really good and Jesus made me better. Well, you misunderstood the gospel. No, you were really, really bad. You were on your way to hell. You were bought out of slavery. So you need to be generous with mercy. You need to be generous with grace. I think you should remind yourself often where you came from, where God saved you from, what pit he, he pulled you out of, and set your feet on a rock and made your footsteps firm. I've had people tell me, you know, everyone here loves me even though they know my past. Well, guess what? Everyone doesn't know all your pasts. And you know what? I would venture to guess that if everybody knew all of our pasts, we wouldn't love each other so much sometimes. But I also think I would venture to guess that as we're honest about who we are and where we've been and where God's taking us, he will bind us together even in deeper unity. I had a friend who's a pastor who came from a very rough background. And he was a gang member. He was shooting people. He was robbing people. And one day he's, he's, walking, he's driving down the street and he's, he sees a group of guys walking down the street. And they're wearing the same kind of clothes he used to wear. They had the same kind of look he used to have. And he told me, he just told me this just recently. He said, you know what? I looked at those guys and I thought, what is their deal? What is their problem? Can't they get it together? And, and God just convicted his heart because he goes, that was me. That was me. Isn't it so easy when you have known Christ for a while, you look with disdain on people that are like you? What did Paul say? Such were some of you, but you were washed in Christ. And we look at people with disdain because they do certain things, and they're the same things we used to do. And some, some people are still doing them. you got to examine your heart. I know we want to say, what's your problem? What's your deal, right? But what we got to say is, Lord, what is my problem? What's my deal? Why am I having trouble with relationships? Why can't I trust friends to show me the truth? Why, why do I have so many blind spots, but I don't want anyone to, to tell me where, what they are? I like what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's overlooking an offense. It's, it's making allowances. It's letting things go. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. The spirit has given us unity and we are to be peaceful with one another. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's good. It's pleasant. It's blessed by God. Paul said in Galatians 5.15, But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you're not consumed by each other. Like Christian cannibalism. If you bite and devour one another, you're going to be consumed by each other. Don't do that. Paul says in, in, in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God and Christ forgave you. So that means you're going to keep short accounts. That means you're going to keep short accounts. You're going to be quick to make sure that things are right between you and others in the body of Christ. And it's always going to be the people you know, because those are the ones you have problems with. See, the total strangers, they look great. 
Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, like if you're coming to worship God, okay, so this, this can be applied right now, all right? You're, you're coming to worship God, and then you remember your brother had some, has something against you. What that means is you did something to hurt your brother or your sister. It says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We like to ignore that. So we got layer upon layer of misunderstandings, upset, hatred, divisions, schisms, and every church has it because every church has people. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, so they're at fault here, go and tell them their fault. Between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You know, every time I come into church, and now you do the same thing. You come into the church and you see the, 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 t- the bread and the cup set up, which is once a month here at Grace, and you're like, oh, gotta confess my sins. You know what we forget, though, is that we need to confess our sins one to another. And there'll be no forced confessions here, too. This is as the Spirit of God works in your heart. But there have been times, I've told people before, there have been times I've had to turn to Angela and say, I'm sorry for what I said yesterday. Or pull somebody out of church and go, you know what? We've had a misunderstanding, we've had a disagreement. I'm really sorry, I wanna make things right. I want to make sure we're okay. I did that yesterday. I called up a brother yesterday. You got to be gracious and refuse to make the subjective objective. You know what I'm saying? We make the subjective opinions into doctrines. Jesus said it this way you teach as doctrines the commandments of men. We're really good at that, aren't we? What we need to do if we want to have unity in the body, and I know some of you are saying, please get to the money part. Please get to the money part. Uh, it's the first time I ever had people begging me to talk about money and possessions. But no, we're going to talk about unity first. Because this is the first thing we see in this passage. Here's what it says. They were of one heart and soul. That's what flowed out into the sharing of their possessions. It was because they were of one heart and one soul. They, they had to rise ag- up against pettiness and contention and contend together for the gospel, the faith once for all delivered. That's what we need to do. You gotta give more grace. There are a lot of people who hold personal opinions very strongly and they don't hesitate to speak them firmly and sometimes without a filter. We got people here at Grace that go filterless. Filter's good. Filter's good. Filter's grace. Filter's mercy. So, we gotta talk about this. And, And the reason why is because we're a body of believers. So some of you are brand new to grace, and some of you have been here a long time. So some of you are part of the problem. Some of you are just beginning to be part of the problem, right? Because we're, we're, we're a people group together. But don't think, we even get, in, we get insecure about our own opinions. We think that everyone's looking down at us because they don't do the same choice we make. Romans 14, Paul says, The faith that you have, have as, hold as your own conviction before God. Basically, don't force on others your non-essential ideas. And it happens a lot uh, in the church, uh, whether it's, you know, there's always a philosophical view about certain things, and there are always things non-essential for salvation and, or even leadership in a church. Our elder board chooses to be united, even though we have lots of different ideas. But I, I like to say that's why we're, by God's grace, we're strong because we will accept all of our ideas at the table. We're not saying everyone has to think exactly the same way how the church should be 
openness, not rigidness about non-essentials. But there is a lack of flexibility. Whether it's about parenting or grandparenting, whether it's about appearance, whether it's about politics or, or your stance on ethical issues. Uh, we've had issues at Grace about whether you choose certain schooling options or, or how many kids you have or whether you give them shots or not or what kind of diaper you wear. I'm not wearing one now, by the way. Here's the thing. The marks of spiritual maturity are not found in Bible knowledge, but in Bible practice. James said it very clearly. Do not be people who deceive themselves by just hearing the word and not doing it. But be doers of the word. That, that's, that's what we should, should be. And that's what builds unity. We've got to give each other the benefit of the doubt. There are only certain people that most of us will give the benefit of the doubt to, and they're the people we like. You, you give everyone the benefit of the doubt, you regard them as, in, as, as innocent until proven otherwise, and you don't go try and prove them guilty. You lean towards a favorable view of them. For example, let's give her the benefit of the doubt and assume she's right. But what would it take to give everyone the benefit of the doubt? What would it take, what would God need to change in your heart for that to happen? Because you, if, you don't, if you don't get there, you will not experience the unity that Jesus wants you to experience in his church of caring and sharing community. You'll gloss over that and miss the point. Do you remember when Jesus talked about sawdust and splinters and planks? Do you remember when he talked about that? And he said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and not even realize you have a big old plank, a big tree in your eye? That's what happens. We are to, as Romans 14.9 says, pursue the things that make for peace and mutual edification. The context in Romans 14 is of not judging your brother or not causing your brother to stumble. I love that word pursue because it's the word dioko in Greek. It's the same word for persecution. We've just been looking at persecution of the church and how we can respond to that. Pursue, chase down and pursue and basically arrest. So what we're, this is good persecution. You're to pursue, you're to arrest, you're to lay hold of, you're to fight for what makes for peace. In 1895, Alfred uh, Nobel willed a portion of his personal estate to award to people who make peace. Long before that happened, Jesus was preaching peace, the blessedness of peacemaking. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. They're going to be recognized as followers of Christ. That's a superior reward than the Nobel Peace Prize. But it's not just a passive, it's not like being a passive person who says, oh, I'm going to be at peace with everyone, not say anything. This is about making peace, ending hostilities, bringing enemies together. And if you want that, you're going to need to focus not on your differences, but on your common faith in Christ. The binder. The church is the body of Christ with Christ as the head. The church is a building with Christ as the foundation. So biblical ideas here. 
The church is a bride with Christ as the groom. So we are, if you're a believer, you're linked forever in Christ with your brothers and sisters in Christ through Christ. So you need to work hard at this unity. You need to grow into the unity. It will be ours for eternity. We're strangers and aliens on earth. We are, Philippians tells us, we are citizens of heaven. Now, we, make, we mix that up, don't we? We, mix, we? we make our citizenship in America even more important sometimes than citizenship in heaven. God forgive us for that. But we should rejoice together in our alien status. You ever been traveling to a foreign country and you see a fellow American and you're like your long-lost relatives? You think your neighbors? You feel like your family? That's how we should be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should take initiative to move closer towards those that we differ with on non-essentials. We need to fight for our unity, work hard at our unity, because that's how you maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, now let's get to the dollar signs, shall we? In addition to unity, there was generosity. There was generosity. Still in verse 32, not one of them said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That's miraculous. That is not our tendency. Our tendency is to to say that all the things that belong to us are our own and that no one else can touch them. We lock them up in our garage or you, you you put like the electric fence up so no one can get your stuff. One evidence of the unity of the church is the way they shared their stuff. It wasn't communism, though. Communism is forced. You basically come into the community and you say, you give up all your possessions. That is not biblical community. Political communism is forced and motivated by fear. Biblical community is voluntary and motivated by love. That's why we didn't have you bring your 1040s and your title deeds. They had everything in common. So they had this common life and they shared, the expression of that common life was sharing of their goods. So here's Jesus bringing people together who are vastly different and forming them into his family and the outflow of, of the life of Christ in them is a common sharing and caring community. Sharing God's blessings with each other. It's very similar to what you saw back in chapter 2, verse 44. And it's almost an exactly statement. 2.44 says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And verse 45 said, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You're like, why is this restated? Because when something's restated in the Bible, especially in close proximity, it means it's really, really important and we need to latch onto it and do it. It's a restatement of, a, of really a reminding explanation of what their common life was like in the first Christian church ever. And we need to be reminded. The church wasn't a place they went, it was who they were. It was a reality they lived and grew into. We, we think in terms of uh, we go to a building, we go to a place that we like or don't like, and, and it's, a, it's an organization that we somehow want to be a part of. But God puts you into the church, and the church is the people, not the place you meet. 
And so the sharing and caring community gets developed and grown into. It's the heart of true fellowship. And it's not just a restatement, by the way. It is also a great lead-in to the, to the positive example of Barnabas, the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira that we're going to look at next week. And by the way, don't think that they gave everything up like a communist-type thing. They lived in their own homes. You see that they met from house to house. And they had their own possessions as any household would. The idea is that they basically said, my personal possessions are not just my private possessions. Anyone can use them. They're not held exclusively for their own use and enjoyment. They, they express their corporate life together by saying, what's mine is yours. Their attitude towards it was, was stellar at that point. Ananias and Sapphira are coming. But they shared their possessions, and it was like this. You know the saying, Mikasa es su casa? People say that, and they throw it around, but they don't mean it. But Mikasa es su casa. It's, if you need it, take it. If you don't need it, don't take it. Like if I tell you, you can use my car whenever you want, and you're like, hmm, I've got a new car. I would prefer not to put any miles on that new car. I'll use Mike's. Yeah, no. You don't need that. But if you don't have a car, that, that would be another situation. Generosity to each other in the body. What did Paul say? When he met with the Ephesian elders, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. He said this, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. He said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. You know that verse. It is more blessed to give than receive. Only place it's found in the Bible is Acts 20, 35. Red letters, a quote of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than receive. Don't just stockpile for yourself. Use what God has blessed you with to bless others. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said, you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. Outdo each other in showing honor. And as a result of their unity, their generosity blossoms so much that verse 34 tells us there is not a needy person among them. And the frog in the throat is coming back. There was no needy among them. And they laid, the, they laid the money at the apostles' feet. They didn't say, by the way, I'm selling my house and I'm giving it to Joe. Giving all the money to Joe. Because Joe's my buddy and I like him and he has my back. I'm giving it all to Joe. No, they took it to the apostles and said, you use it for whoever needs it. That signified that they were acknowledging Christ's authority over all things, including their stuff. Is there a need you could meet? Has God put anything on your heart where you want to help someone in need? Or even to take it a step further and say, I just want to give something to benefit anyone who might be benefited by it. Now you'll notice in verse 35 when they are talking about distributing to each as any had need. That was an extraordinary response to extraordinary needs. As needs arose put it there, use it. Barnabas did that. 
His name was really Joseph. Verse 36 tells us his name was Joseph. But the, the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So he lived his name. He got his name because of the way he lived. And he was a Levite. Which in the Old Testament, it says Levites can't even own any property. But here, that must have been somewhat of a dead letter because he had a property. He was from Cyprus. He wasn't even from Israel. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He probably was one of those people that came from all over the known world for the day of Pentecost and got saved. You know that there were people from all over the world that day, and now they didn't know they were coming there to, to, to come to faith in Christ. And now they've joined this church and they haven't gone home yet. They would have had a lot of needs for food and clothing and, and shelter. The church is taking care of its own. They had all things in common. They understood that what they had belonged to God. And therefore, when a brother or sister had a need, they would meet it and were able to do so. I think we can emulate a lot of these ideas, but you're not required to do it. I just want you to know that. You're free. You're free in Christ. It's a voluntary association. The, the principles of Christian giving are outlined in the epistles, especially 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Basically, you boil it down. It's give freely, give cheerfully, give worshipfully. And it's not so much about doing what you're supposed to do. It's about being who you are in Christ. Okay, there's one more thing I want to point out in this passage, and we'll do it quickly. We'll look at it briefly. It's very significant, and, and you might think, well, wait, this doesn't really connect in, but it is, it's the outflow. It, they had unity, they had generosity, but here's the third thing they had, a solid testimony. It wasn't just for the body, it was to bless the world because people were seeing that they knew Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 13 that all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And their love uh, blossomed out into into testimony verse 33 says with great power they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the lord jesus and great grace was upon them all so they had great power to to preach the gospel and great grace of god upon their lives their prayers had been answered and all i can say is who can do this who can take people who are enslaved and obstinate and surly and angry and selfish and contentious and hurting and who are very different from one another, and free them and form them into a transformed, vibrant, unified, generous community that is actually centered on Christ and displays his gospel grace to the world. Who can do this? Only Jesus. Only Jesus can do this. I spoke with a man recently who said he thinks heaven and hell are here right here on earth, and that he's experiencing heaven, and everyone else is experiencing hell. I said, really? How so? How are you experiencing heaven right now, and everyone else experiencing hell? And he said, because of my good life, and because of how hard I've worked, and I built myself a good home. And by the way, the guy lives like a mile away from here. His attitude is diametrically opposed to anything we're seeing here, and he, he, he even acknowledged that there's no God except himself and his life. I told him that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He says, well, I'm already in heaven right now. He told me that he would love to continue a conversation with me anytime, any day, as long as I would leave Jesus home. And I told him, I can no more leave Jesus home than leave my face or my heart at home. I gave him Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me. I gave him John 14.6. He's the only way. 
He's the only mediator between God and man. He's, he's the only Savior. He's the righteous one. I tell you, our testimony goes beyond solo witnessing. It's about people seeing Christians in love with Jesus so they love one another and they observe. I had like 50 people at my house yesterday. Uh, Michael's cross-country team had a big race at Irvine Park and all the moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and all the team were there. And, and I told them before we prayed, I said, you know, most of you are believers. Praise God. And, and my neighbors, some of them are believers, some of them aren't. I know them. And they're gonna hear you talking. They're gonna see you coming and going. They're gonna see how we treat one another. And in that example, they're going to see some of the heard about Jesus in action. How, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. See, everything in common means Jesus wants us to experience caring and sharing community in his church that eludes so many, and it goes beyond our differences. You know who the most generous people I've ever met are? They're very rich and they're very poor. And everyone in the middle is holding on to their stuff for dear life. I had a friend named Mike once who, for Christmas, he gave me a seashell. He was a college student. He was from Huntington, West Virginia. And he had no money. And he had been to the beach, and he, he wrapped up a little seashell. It was one of the best presents I ever received. He gave out of his poverty. The, the widow gave out of her poverty. We've got unity that's just sitting there waiting for us to grow into. We've got generosity that takes a... a takes a Christ-centered view of possessions, a long view of possessions, and says, you know what? I'm going to take an eternal view of life and not hold on so tight to what I have here. By the way, if you think about it, in light of eternity, everything here is immediate gratification. And they had a testimony. They had a testimony and effective witness for the gospel. And as we come to the table, I think that we should be filled with wonder and awe at what Christ has done in our own hearts, and in binding us together in a community of very different people.